Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome. I've got my coffee with me. In 1907, then-President Theodore Roosevelt was visiting Nashville. Uh, he begged the ladies of the Hermitage Society. He said, I just need to have a meal at the general's table. Uh, that is General Andrew Jackson's table at the Hermitage, uh, Old Hickory's home nearby Nashville. And Theodore Roosevelt, well, those ladies uh, acquiesced. They held a luncheon for President Theodore Roosevelt, during which they lobbied him, uh, eventually successfully, for federal funding for a new plumbing system uh, for the Hermitage. If you read the subsequent message to Congress, uh, the State of the Union that Theodore Roosevelt delivers, he requests specifically funding for a new plumbing system uh, for the Hermitage. Back at the 1907 luncheon, when he finished his luncheon, Theodore Roosevelt reportedly finished his coffee, turned to the steward and told the steward, Sir, that coffee was good to the last drop. The coffee was from the Maxwell House Hotel, downtown Nashville, Tennessee, Cheek Brothers proprietors. And many years later, after Theodore Roosevelt's passing, uh, magazine advertisements and things like the New Yorker uh, uh, illustrations uh, showed that uh, 1907 occasion as being the source of that trademarked phrase, good to the last drop. The Nashville newspaper the next morning reported that at luncheon, Theodore Roosevelt had said, that's the kind of coffee I like to drink when I hunt bear. Uh, I think either, uh, both uh, sound equally Rooseveltian. It's Saturday. April 4th, 2020. Welcome to Teddy Talks, 26 visits with the 26th president. Ever since I began portraying Theodore Roosevelt, uh, after the gift of uh, Edmund Morris's The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, that 1978 Pulitzer Prize winner was given to me by my dear sister-in-law, Cynthia Barlow, and, and Cynthia gave me that book knowing that uh, I wanted to help the country in some way, and and uh, eventually the way that I've tried to help the country is to bring to life Theodore Roosevelt on stage, and now to do some of his readings on the internet. And uh, what I've thought is that each day in the calendar, excluding Sundays, uh, that uh, we'll come live and 
take something from history on that date, the history of Theodore Roosevelt, and present that to you. And so uh, today, April 4th, we'll commemorate Theodore Roosevelt's April 4th, 1903 visit uh, to uh, Minnesota uh, as he was taking his great Western trip uh, that would take him for nine weeks through 22 states and two territories. He spoke uh, first uh, on that date, April 4th, 1903, at the state uh, legislature in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then later at the chapel, the university chapel at the University of Minnesota in uh, Minneapolis. And so I'll uh, read those brief speeches. Today's program uh, will be shorter and uh, uh, then we'll take Sunday off. Tonight I'll post a little something about Theodore Roosevelt's faith life. Tonight I think specifically uh, something he published in Ladies Home Journal uh, uh, about uh, good reasons to go to church. But then we'll pick up again Monday, April 6th. Uh, that is the anniversary of the United States uh, entering uh, World War I. Uh, through the week we'll have uh, various programs. April 7th 1903 was the date that Theodore Roosevelt returned here to Medora. And so uh, we'll have a, a reading of that brief little speech he made and talk a bit more about this wonderful Badlands territory of what is today North Dakota. April 10th is the anniversary of Theodore Roosevelt giving a speech, The Strenuous Life, uh, at the University of Chicago to the Hamilton Society in 1899. I do say that the modern audiences now with the uh, uh, popularity of Hamilton uh, have begun asking uh, whether or not I rap. Uh, I say I hardly even rhyme. Uh, a couple of uh, dates in history uh, uh, related to Theodore Roosevelt in a way. Uh, today, April 4th, on, uh, in the year 1818 on this date, was born the uh, English, Irish, the Irish and then American author, uh, Captain uh, Thomas Maine Reed. Maine Reed, as he was known, was one of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, favorite authors. Uh, he wrote uh, children's novels uh, uh, under such titles as uh, uh, the, uh, the Boy Hunters, uh, the, uh, the Rifle Rangers, the Scalp Hunters, and famously, The Headless Horseman. Uh, that's not uh, uh, Washington Irving's uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Ichabod Crane, uh, but these are stories that are set in the American Southwest, the plains of Texas. And Theodore Roosevelt gives great credit uh, to the books of Maine Reed as being his introduction to uh, the outdoors and thrilling adventures and, and explorations and mammalogy, uh, though they were quite simple. Uh, those of you that have read about Theodore Roosevelt know that when he was a little boy, he found a harbor seal down at uh, one of the uh, fish markets uh, down along the wharves. And uh, he begged that fellow to have that, uh, the, uh, that uh, seal. Uh, the fellow uh, uh, said no, but Theodore Roosevelt came back with his tape measure and journaled all about and sketched and, and uh, lived the uh, history of this seal. And eventually the skull of that seal, when the, uh, the fish market fellow was all done with that seal and its blubber and its meat, uh, he gave the skull of that seal to Theodore Roosevelt. And, uh, that was the uh, first and perhaps the most important piece in the collection of Roosevelt's Museum of Natural History, uh, something that Theodore Roosevelt and his brother Elliot and cousins next door uh, uh, kept in the fourth floor at the home at 28 East 20th Street nearby Gramercy Park in Manhattan, New York City. So Maine Reed uh, uh, was... Uh, 
a man who came to uh, the United States uh, via New Orleans, uh, came at the young age of 21, and before a half dozen years had passed after he'd become a newspaper man and young novelist uh, in uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, in the latter city becoming a drinking companion of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Maine Reed enlisted when the United States entered uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Mexican War, the Mexican-American War. Uh, he fought uh, under Scott and was uh, injured uh, by a bullet wound to the leg at the Battle of Chapultepec. And after the war, uh, Reed in the 50s, 1850s, became uh, quite successful with his uh, novels. Uh, those novels, uh, some of the favorites of Theodore Roosevelt. And I think in later years, he said he, he couldn't quite uh, uh, get into the books, but as a young boy, they were just the sort of thing uh, that he enjoyed. If I may, April 4th, 1853 is also the birthday of Tad Lincoln. That is Thomas Lincoln the third, uh, the third uh, uh, oldest, uh, uh, the youngest. I'm sorry, the four Lincoln children. Uh, Tad, actually, if you've been noticing on my wall, we have here in 1864 President Abraham Lincoln reading to young Tad. I think uh, simple enough to give you a little show of that uh, of that picture of Lincoln and young Tad. Uh, Tad. Uh, Thomas was his name, of course, named after Lincoln's uh, father, uh, but uh, called Tad for Lincoln when he saw the little boy, uh, said that uh, he was so wiggly and his head so large, he looked like a tadpole. And uh, John Hay, uh, Lincoln's private secretary, who would go on to be Theodore Roosevelt's uh, Secretary of State, inherited from McKinley, John Hay wrote after young Tad uh, died at the age of 18 in uh, Chicago in 1871, that uh, uh, the, he wrote of the young Tadpole, uh, Tad Lincoln, born in this state. Uh, Tad uh, was so mischievous uh, in the White House, and especially in the first year of the Lincoln presidency, when his brother Willie, who passed of typhoid fever, uh, it struck Tad as well, but Willie passed in February of 1862, putting a terrible pall over the Lincoln White House and affecting uh, Mary Todd Lincoln grievously. Uh, previous to the death of uh, Willie, uh, both the Lincoln boys and uh, two Taft boys uh, had the run of the White House. Uh, perhaps that was the original White House gang. Uh, some of you have uh, asked some questions or asked for some stories to be told in the, uh, in the future. Uh, you'd like to hear some stories of the White House gang. Well, long before young Quentin Roosevelt and his cohorts uh, were uh, teasing and, and uh, torturing the uh, Secret Service and the Washington, D.C. police and visitors to the White House, it was uh, Tad that was charging visitors to see his uh, his father in the White House and collecting uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, animals and creatures uh, that little boys are wont to do even when their father is president of the United States. Uh, we'll also have some stories about uh, Alice Roosevelt, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, married at the White House in 1906. Uh, her behavior, of course, uh, quite scandalous and uh, a great deal of fun in the stories of Alice Roosevelt. You may see that uh, I'm trying to march through the calendar and find things uh, connected with the dates. Alice Roosevelt Longworth, uh, she was born in February. She was married in February. Uh, she was uh, buried in February. She died in February uh, at the age of 96 
in uh, 1980, right at the, uh, the last year of the Carter administration. Uh, uh, my friend Julia Marple, when she interprets uh, Edith Roosevelt, uh, she may reference that uh, phrase from that, uh, that period, that uh, a lady's name should be in the newspaper uh, only when she is uh, uh, married and when she is buried, uh, I think. Uh, I think the birth announcement counts for the trifecta. Well, today is a salute to Minnesota. Minnesota and Theodore Roosevelt are the same age. Actually, Minnesota statehood a few months earlier than Theodore Roosevelt's October 27, 1858 birthday. But when we celebrated Theodore Roosevelt's sesquicentennial, his 150th birthday, uh, we were also celebrating Minnesota's 150th birthday that year. And it was my pleasure that year to march in the parade at the Minnesota State Fair every morning, their opening parade, because it was uh, at that parade uh, or at that uh, fair on Labor Day, 1901, September 1st, that then Vice President Theodore Roosevelt, not knowing the fate that would befall McKinley uh, five days hence, uh, being shot in Buffalo and dying a week later, uh, it was there that Theodore Roosevelt quoted the old African proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. Uh, his analogy was that uh, this was the American Navy forward deployed. The phrase in its uh, origin uh, meant quite literally that a man could travel from his own tribe, uh, tribal region, to and through other tribal regions and do so peacefully, unmolested, if he spoke diplomatically. But it helped if he had a big stick. It looked like he knew how to use it, too. Minnesota uh, voted for Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, one of six states to do so. He carried Minnesota over uh, Wilson, his closest competitor, uh, uh, Taft and Debs running further behind. 37% of the uh, popular vote in all 12 electoral votes from the land of 10,000 lakes. Some of those lakes being protected during Theodore Roosevelt's presidency when he declared Superior National Forest and Chippewa National Forest. We often say that uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, gets the lion's share of the credit for the national parks. And he was able to wrestle five out of Congress during his presidential administration, doubling the number of national parks from five to 10. It did take an act of uh, Congress to name a national park, and uh, all too often uh, that was a, an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, those uh, state uh, 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 representatives and senators uh, instead wanting to see those uh, public lands uh, utilized uh, in some fashion. Uh, but Theodore Roosevelt understanding that we needed our wild places uh, to recreate and visit and be inspired by as well. But he was able to declare by presidential order, and, and these being delegated powers from Congress, he was able to declare 150 national forests, neatly about 150 million acres above the 50 million that had been established uh, before his administration. It was the Forest Reserve Act that delegated that uh, opportunity to the president and uh, his own Congress under the leadership of uh, Congressman Lacey of Oskaloosa, Iowa would uh, further his powers by granting him uh, under the Monuments and Antiquities Act of 1906, the opportunity to name national monuments. Uh, but uh, uh, those two forests uh, in Minnesota, a wonderful part of Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. I mentioned that on uh, Saturday, uh, uh, that on April 4th in, uh, in 1903, Theodore Roosevelt uh, was in uh, Minnesota. Uh, his speeches that day a bit briefer and 
and uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing these speeches with you and then looking through your comments. Comments and questions, bring them, uh, keep them coming in, please. Uh, they, uh, they really do give me encouragement and, and give me an opportunity to, uh, to uh, sort of fine tune and look back and, and uh, look things up. Uh, my good friend Rick Stern uh, has been engaged and, and has asked a, a good question each day. And, and yesterday I uh, mentioned that uh, certainly Theodore Roosevelt seemed to be uh, quite a, a speechifier, could uh, perhaps write and deliver those speeches, and he did. Uh, most of uh, what I understand is that Theodore Roosevelt wrote his own speeches. Uh, for state speeches, uh, would very often circulate that speech. Uh, friends like Henry Cabot Lodge in the, in the Senate, uh, often a confidant. Uh, certainly uh, any sort of State of the Union uh, or a message to Congress would be circulated amongst the cabinet secretaries for comment, and, uh, for uh, the inclusion of materials and reports from those, uh, from those departments. But uh, it's uh, written that uh, Washington's farewell address was um, written mostly by Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, certainly, uh, we remember uh, Schlesinger, Arthur Schlesinger, uh, being a speechwriter for, uh, for John F. Kennedy and uh, previously uh, Harry Hopkins and, and others uh, helping to write speeches for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I did find an instance in Gifford Pinchot's autobiography, Breaking New Ground. This is Pinchot, who had been uh, chief of the uh, Forest Service uh, for uh, President Roosevelt. Pinchot, who would go on to serve two terms as Pennsylvania governor, paved the rural roads and got the uh, farmer out of the mud. Uh, Pinchot toured the country in 1910 with Roosevelt. Indeed, when Roosevelt left Africa and briefly stayed in Italy, it was Gifford Pinchot, recently fired by President William Howard Taft as our forester in the Pinchot-Ballinger country. It was Pinchot who raced to Italy uh, with a satchel full of letters and reports for the review of Colonel Roosevelt. And uh, Gifford Pinchot claims in Breaking New Ground that it was he who mostly wrote the new nationalism speech uh, given by uh, Roosevelt in Osawatomie, Kansas at the dedication of the John Brown State Historic Site there in Osawatomie. So I, uh, I do uh, appreciate that uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I'm fairly certain, was the author of most of what we would call his speeches. And next week, The Strenuous Life. So a wonderful story related to that as well. So with no further ado, the readings of Theodore Roosevelt for uh, today, April 4th, these coming from 1903 in Minnesota. Before the Minnesota State Legislature in St. Paul. Oh, and uh, here a note on one of TR's references. Uh, he says, We have been able to escape the leadership of those who feared Sila uh, so much that they would plunge us into Charybdis. And of those who feared Charybdis so much that they would plunge us into Sila. In classical mythology, Sila was a horrible six headed monster who lived on a rock on one side of a narrow strait. Charybdis was a whirlpool on the other side, and when ships passed close to Sila's rock in order to avoid Charybdis, she would seize and devour the sailors. Uh, you may recognize this from uh, Jason and the uh, Argonauts and or Odysseus. Uh, all had to pass between uh, Sila and Charybdis. 
Also, Governor Van Zandt, Lieutenant Governor Jones, and Speaker Babcock alluded to are all Republicans. Governor Van Zandt had actually, as governor, initiated a suit against the Northern Securities Railroad Trust, James P. Hill of Minnesota, along with J.P. Morgan and Harriman partners. Well, it was subsequently that uh, Attorney General Feilander Knox and Theodore Roosevelt sued the Northern Securities uh, uh, Trust, uh, claiming they were in violation of the Sherman antitrust laws. And by a 5-4 decision uh, that was upheld, the first major and and then uh, precedent-setting case of the United States breaking up a, uh, a great trust. So, Mr. Governor, Mr. Lieutenant Governor, Mr. Speaker, members of the legislative body, men and women of Minnesota, I thank you for greeting me and for giving me the chance to say a word or two in welcome and in acknowledgement of your greeting. To any American capable of any depth of reflection whatever, it should always be a somewhat solemn thing to come into the presence of two bodies on a legisl- in one legislative body, the other an educational body. The legislative body, which is not only the method but the symbol of our free government, the educational body, which, using educational in its broadest and truest sense, means the body that fits us for self-government. Self-government is not an easy thing. The nations of antiquity, the nations of the Middle Ages, that tried the experiment of independent self-government, which would guarantee freedom to the individual, and yet safety from without and within to the body politic itself, rarely lasted long. Never rose to a pitch of greatness such as ours without having suffered some radical and, as it proved ultimately, fatal challenge of structure. Until our Republic was founded, it had proved impossible in the long run to combine freedom for the individual and greatness for the nation. The republics of antiquity and of the Middle Ages went one of two lines. Either proved fatal. Either the individual's interests were sacrificed, and while retaining the forms of freedom, the republic became in effect a despotism, or else the freedom of the individual was kept at the cost of utter impotence, either to put down disorder at home or to repel aggression from abroad. It has been given to us during the century and a quarter of our national life so to handle ourselves as a people that we have escaped both dangers. We have been able to escape the leadership of those who feared Scylla so much that they would plunge us into Charybdis. And, those, uh, and of those who feared Charybdis so much that they would plunge us into Scylla. We have been able to preserve orderly liberty and strength to grow in greatness among the nations of the earth, while becoming steadily more and more democratic in the truest and broadest sense of the word. I believe with all my heart that we shall continue on the path thus marked out for us, But we shall so continue only if we remember that in the last analysis, the safety of the Republic depends upon the high average of individual citizenship. 
We can keep all the forms of free government, and every 4th of July we can talk possibly a little too boastfully of both the past and the present. And yet it shall not avail us if we do not have in our hearts the spirit that makes for decent citizenship, the spirit that alone counts in the formation of a true republic, and that spirit is essentially the same in public life as in private life. The manifestations of it differ, but the spirit is the same. A public man is as much bound to tell the truth on the stump as off the stump. On the other hand, his critics will do well to remember that truth-telling is a virtue for them to practice also. What we need in public life and in private life is not genius so much as the many-sided development of the qualities which in their sum make good citizenship. In a great crisis, we shall need a genius. Thrice, thrice over, fortunate is the nation which then develops a Lincoln to lead it in peace, a Grant to lead it in war, a Washington to lead it in war and peace. But what we need as a nation, as an individual, at the ordinary times which are so much larger in the aggregate than the extraordinary times, and upon our conduct in which really depends our conduct in extraordinary times, are the commonplace virtues which we all recognize and which when we were young we wrote about in copybooks, and which if we practice will count for a thousand times more in the long run than any brilliance and genius of any kind or sort whatsoever. I want to say just a word on the other side of the two great questions, the legislative and educational questions. Education must be twofold. Of course, if we do not have education in the school, the academy, the college, the university, and have it developed in the highest and wisest, wisest manner, we shall make but a poor fist of American citizenship. One of the things that is most hopeful in our republic is the way in which the state has taken charge of elementary education and the way in which in the East through private gift, here in the West, through the wise liberality of the several states, the higher education has been taken care of, as in your own University of Minnesota. But such education can never be all. It can never be more than half, and sometimes not that. Nothing can take the place of the education of the home. Of that education must be largely the unconscious influence of character upon character. There is no use in the father trying to instill wise saws and precepts into the son if his own character gives the lie to his advice. And unfortunately, it is just as true in the education of children as in everything else, that it is almost as harmful to be a virtuous fool as a knave. So often throughout our social structure, from the wealthiest down to the poorest, you see the queer fatuity of the man or the woman who makes them save their children temporary discomfort, temporary unpleasantness at the cost of future destruction. You see a great many men and uh, I am sorry to say a great many women who say, I have, I have had to work hard. My boy or my girl shall not do anything.
I have seen it in every rank. I have heard the millionaire say, I have had to work all my life to make money. Let my boy spend it. It would be better for the boy never to have been born than to be brought up on that principle. On the other hand, I have seen the overworked drudge, the laborer's wife who said, well, I have had to work my heart out all my days. My daughters shall be ladies. And her conception of her daughters being ladies was to have them sit around useless and incompetent, unable to do anything, brought up to be discontented cumberers on the earth's surface. As Abraham Lincoln said, there is a deal of human nature in mankind. Fundamentally, virtues and faults are just the same in the millionaire and the day laborer. The man or the woman who seeks to bring up his or her children with the idea that their happiness is secured by teaching them to avoid difficulties is doing them a cruel wrong. To bring up the boy and girl so sheltered that they cannot stand any rough knocks, that they shrink from toil, that when they meet an obstacle they feel they ought to go around or back instead of going on over it, the man or the woman who does that is wrongdoing the children to a degree that no other human being can wrong them. If you are worth your salt and want your children to be worth their salt, teach them that the life that is not a life of work and effort is worthless. A curse to the man or woman leading it, a curse to those around him or her. Teach the boys that if they are ever to count in the world, they will count not by flinching from difficulties, but by warring with them and overcoming them. What utter scorn one feels for those who seek only the life of ease, the life passed in dexterous effort to avoid all angular corners, to avoid being put in the places where a strong man by blood and sweat and toil and risk wins triumph. What a wretched life is the life of the man passed in endeavoring to shirk his share of the burden laid upon him in this world. And it makes no difference whether that man is a man of inherited wealth or one who has to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. It is equally ignoble in either case. What is true of the individual is true of the nation. The man who counts is not the man who dodges work, but he who goes out into life rejoicing as a strong man to run a race, girding himself for the effort, bound to win and wrest triumph from difficulty and disaster. So it is with our nation. No nation which has bound itself only to do easy things ever yet amounted to anything, ever yet came to anything throughout the ages. We have become a great people. At the threshold of this 20th century, we stand with the future looming large before us. We face great problems within and great problems without. We cannot if we would refuse to face these problems. All we can decide is whether we will do them well or ill. For the refusal to face them would itself mean that we were doing them ill. We are in the arena into which great nations must come. We must play our part. It rests with us to decide that we shall not play it ignobly, that we shall not flinch from the great problems that are that there are to do. 
but that we shall take our place in the forefront of the great nations and face each problem of the day with confident and resolute hope. That from the address to the state legislature, and later that day in the chapel of the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, uh, uh, the Mr. President alluded to is uh, University of Minnesota President Cyrus Northrup. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I am glad to have the chance of greeting you this evening, but I regret that the engagements for me have been so numerous that it will only be a greeting. I wish I could be here to see your beautiful grounds and buildings by daylight and to see a little of the life of the university. There are plenty of tendencies for good, and I am sorry to say plenty of tendencies for evil in our modern life. And among the former must be placed the rapid growth of the great institutions of learning in this country. There is a twofold side to the work done in any institution of this kind. In the first place, the institution is to turn out scholars and men proficient in the different technical branches for which it trains them. It should be the aim of every university which seeks to develop the liberal side of education to turn out men and women who will add to the sum of productive achievement in scholarship, who will not merely be content to work in the fields that have already been harrowed a thousand times by other workers, but who will strike out for themselves and try to do new work that counts. So in each technical school, if the institution is worthy of standing in the front rank, it will turn out those who in that particular specialty stand at the head. But in addition to this merely technical work, to the turning out of the scholar, the professional man, the man or woman trained on some special line, each university worthy the name must endeavor to turn out men and women in the fullest sense of the word, good citizens, men and women who will add by what they do to the sum of noble work in the whole community. It is a good thing that so much attention should be given to physical development. I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal so long as it is not fatal. And if he feels any sympathy for himself, I do not like him. I believe thoroughly in the sound and vigorous body. I believe still more in the vigorous mind. And I believe most of all in what count for more than body for more than mind, and that is character. That is the sum of the forces that make the man or the woman worth knowing, worth revering, worth holding to. Play hard while you play, but do not mistake it for work. If a young fellow is twenty, it is a good thing that he should be a crack halfback. But when he is forty, I am sorry if he has never been anything else except once at twenty a good halfback. Keep the sense of proportion. Play hard. It will do you good in your work. But work hard, and remember that that is the main thing. Finally, in closing, I think it is a safe thing to take a motto that I heard from the lips of an old football player once. Don't flinch. Don't fall and hit the line hard. 
Ladies and gentlemen and friends, thank you for joining me in what had been the first days, the premier days of Teddy Talks. In April, 26 days with the 26th president. I mentioned the other day we're looking for a title for future programs. I did a little looking forward and counting this time. The reason April is uh, named 26 days with the 26th president is because excluding Sundays, a good day of rest and family time, there are 26 days in April, Monday through Saturday, beginning on Wednesday the 1st, that we'll visit 26 times in April. And if we continue in June, uh, in May, in May, in June, well, in May, excluding Sundays, there are 26 days, Monday through Saturday, that we might visit in the month of May. And in June, excluding Sundays, there are 26 days on the calendar in June, Monday through Saturday, excluding Sundays. So at least for the first uh, three months of Teddy Talks, which I think uh, I've enjoyed enough to make a commitment to let you know that uh, we should be visiting. Uh, I hope that it's of some comfort and encouragement to you. It is to me to get into the words of Theodore Roosevelt, and I promise to do my best to do a better job uh, reading and conveying uh, uh, his words and and also having a bit of uh, information with regards to this date in history and the background on Theodore Roosevelt and such. My thanks to you for being with me these early days of April. Uh, if there's anything that uh, you took away from today's uh, presentation, uh, should have done it at the top of the show, but here. Again, the men and women of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, CVN-71, that nuclear aircraft carrier that the Navy calls the Big Stick. Uh, recently uh, uh, relieved of command was Captain Brett Crozier. And it's to Captain Crozier and to the crew of the Theodore Roosevelt that I dedicate today's program. We'll do my best to be prepared next week and uh, to each and every one of you. All the best from Medora, North Dakota.